CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect, manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store. Welcome to the CoinWorld Podcast with your host, Jeff. And as I've said from day one of this show, this is a big tent hobby. There's a lot of room for... And Larry, and learning has been such a tremendous of this the Coin World podcast. Time once again for the Coin World podcast. We're glad to have you on board here today. I get a chance to come back and work with you. Welcome, Chris. Hey, Larry. I'm I'm so glad. We I feel like you and I haven't actually been on the same segment of any of the podcasts in a while. So I'm glad we're doing this. Well, we were fortunate enough to both do uh, the Abby Zeckman interview recently. Very true. That was a Definitely a treat, but uh, it's always good to be with you on this segment as well because we're back once again. Thanks to our fine folks at Coin World Plus and the job that they do for us on the slab coins. And uh, I know we're going to have some representatives out here as we start getting uh, ready to go out and see some more shows as the year goes along right here. So make sure if you happen to be at one of the shows where the Coin World Plus folks are there, stop in. Find out some more about what's going on. And speaking about what's going on, Chris, I don't know if you've been keeping up with this stuff. It's kind of hard to keep up with everything, with everything that's going on. But uh, I just happened to look at gold prices the other day. Not like I got a horse in that race, but still. (laughs) I have a look at gold prices, and I was stunned. What do you see? They have set a historical record, right? They've... uh... The, I mean, the market plummeted largely in response to uncertainty surrounding the conflict in Ukraine. And so that's uh, that has forced the price of gold, frankly, through the roof, or at least it's it shattered the previous record, which I read was August 2020 was when the record was broken last time, owing to uncertainty surrounding COVID. So yeah, certainly seems as though uh, concern about uh, international issues is uh, driving the gold price up. Well, it's like history repeats itself there. I mean, silver's at an eight-month high. The thing that really got my attention is one we don't talk about, but the London Metals Exchange announced uh, just before we recorded this that they were going to stop nickel trading. And I went, do what? Nickel trading? Is that an issue now? But apparently because of the supply of nickel that you have in uh, in Russia, then uh, there was some concerns about all the different things there. So uh, they went ahead and suspended nickel trading, and I don't know if it's back yet or not, but it's just kind of these volatile times right here, just something to kind of keep an eye on. Factors, there are many. There are all kinds of possibilities as to why things are happening here. We're not even going to get into that speculation or anything about that. It's just something to keep an eye on right there. Obviously, our, our commitment with Coin World, with the magazine, with the podcast, and with everything that we have going, we're definitely going to be uh, keeping an eye on how things are going right there. But before we uh, get too far down the tracks here, I want to tell folks that we're going to be talking to Jerry Fortin a little bit later on uh, from the Seated Liberty or Liberty Seated, depending upon how you uh, how you broach that particular idea. But I want to get things started by going back into time, taking uh, the role that Jeff normally has by talking about this week in numismatic history. And here we are in the early part of March, and there was a lot of things going on in the early part of March. But the thing that caught my eye was that on March 11th of 1944, the U.S. Treasury granted the export license for the 1933 St. Godden's Gold $20 Double Eagle 
to the government of Egypt. And now that is a really, really significant event. And of course, it got very significant last year around March or around June time when that coin sold uh, for $18.87 million. Had a chance to see that coin at the uh, ANA's World's Fair of Money in Rosemont in August. A beautiful coin that it is right there. And $18.87 million made the point that that coin sold for more than that building cost to construct back in uh, when they built the uh, Stevens Convention Center back there in Rosemont. But uh, that's our look back into history. One single item to talk about coming in from uh, March 11th of 1944. And another year that's significant, you'll find out the significance of it later when we talk to our friend Jerry Fortin of Jerry Fortin Rare Coins, was the year 1988. So Chris, I hope that you were able to dig back into the Coin World archives and come away with uh, a special issue to see what we were talking about in Coin World back at that time. I did, yeah. As you mentioned, we're checking out uh, March 9th, 1988. And again, for reasons relevant to the Jerry Fortin interview, on the front page above the fold, there was a headline that really jumped out at me, uh, mainly because it dealt with a topic that we discuss on the podcast with some regularity. So I thought that it would be interesting to see, you know, a little snapshot of the historical side of this issue going back to the late 80s. Um, the headline reads, Senate Banking Plans Coin Redesign Hearing. Proxmire finds, quote, growing support, unquote. So essentially, uh, Senator William Proxmire, a Democrat of Wisconsin, had scheduled a hearing before the Senate Banking, Housing, and Urban Affairs Committee uh, to discuss coin redesigns. Proxmire is quoted in the article saying, there is growing support for the modernization of our coin designs. I believe this hearing will provide an appropriate forum in which to present proposals for a uh, well-structured program to develop new coin designs that are reflective of America's enduring values and her dynamic spirit, unquote. So a bill had been introduced in October of 1987 to essentially provide for uh, coin redesign called S-1776, Interestingly, uh, 36 senators, uh, senators had co-sponsored it and uh, representatives for this hearing that they were going to be um, holding were from the Treasury Department, the Commission of Fine Arts and the American Numismatic Association, you know, all of which are organizations that we have talked about quite a bit on the podcast, all of which are organizations relevant to, to numismatics. So I thought that was interesting because we've talked about the designs that currently appear in our coins. Obviously, in the late 1980s, uh, designs had been uh, constant for quite a while. Um, in my lifetime, we've had the... Uh, you know, the 50 state quarter and America, the beautiful quarter programs. We've had, you know, uh, different small size dollar coin programs um, and just a whole range of things. But in the, you know, late 1980s, uh, circulating coinage had been more or less the same for a long time. So it was interesting to see that in 1988, they were planning on having a hearing about it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I even read something recently about some of the designs and, of course, the uh, artistic infusion program that got involved here and uh, how things have kind of stabilized a little bit like that. But uh, also a very neat story about the Smithsonian. We recently had uh, the National Numismatic Collection curator, uh, Dr. Ellen Feingold, on recently. And, of course, we're uh, keeping an eye on some of the news that she passed along to us as well. So, but let's go ahead and take a look at the letters from that March 9th, 1988. One uh, bigger letter, as they were all bigger letters back in uh, that particular issue. But this one said, random changes hurt hobby. Hmm, kind of wonder about that one. At the age of 10, I was given an old large scent by my dad that he found as a boy in an old burned down house. The old, and he put it in uh, quotation marks, penny, 
didn't even have a legible date on it, but that coin has a lasting effect on me and was the start of a lifetime of collecting not only U.S., but also world coins and currency. My collection today consists of hundreds of pieces I bought while overseas in the Air Force and the 30 years since I first got that old cent. That old penny is still a part of my collection. As an enthusiastic and sometimes addicted, as as sometimes I've been called, collector, I've always stayed fairly up to date on the changing procedures used in grading coins. When I first started collecting, coins were graded about good, good, very good, fine, very fine, and uncirculated. Since then, all those grades have had numbers applied to them, and now an 11-point system has been added to uncirculated coins from Mint State 60 to Mint State 70. Just recently, the American Numismatic Association and Professional Grading Services decided that the older grading system wasn't good enough and have decided to change it again, making previous coins graded MS-65 and MS-66, now only MS-62 or 63, and MS-63s as low as MS-60. These random changes in the grading system have begun to really upset me, as I have in the past paid premium prices for coins in the grades of MS-60 to 65. When these grading systems change, I, along with other collectors, get ripped off, and in the case of some rarer coins, to the tune of several thousand dollars. For instance, a 1901S Morgan dollar jumps from $600 in MS-63 to $3,400 in MS-65. An 1883S Morgan goes from $900 in MS-63 to close to $6,000 in MS-65. For a person who paid those MS-65 prices before the grading change, you can see the loss they took. That's one of the biggest rip-offs I've seen in my 34 years of collecting, and I'm sure there are others who feel the same as I do. I love coin collecting, but these changes by professional grading systems, along with altered dates, cleaned coins, removed mint marks, counterfeits, and other scandals we face, have taken a lot of the excitement and the joy out of coin collecting. It makes me hesitant about paying higher prices for higher grade coins because I wonder when another one of these grading changes will take place and I, along with other collectors, get burned again. Then, there's always the problem with overgraded coins that are never the same grade when you sell them as they were when you bought them. I'm sure there are other collectors who, like me, collect not only for the enjoyment and thrill of owning these mysterious and beautiful coins, but also for their monetary and investment value. Why can't coin collecting be one investment and hobby where we don't have to worry about the people who are going to change the grading services and organizations that are getting involved with that, making decisions and changes that end up costing investors thousands of dollars. In closing, I'd like to say that if they can't make changes that benefit us, then don't make any changes at all. Even though I get discouraged with all these changes and problems, I'll always be a coin collector and just hope for the best. I love coin collecting too much to quit now. That letter came from Don Newkirk, of McAllen, Texas. So, I mean, there was a lot to that, but 1988, of course, different time than what we experience right now, but very relevant for the times, as I'm sure it was. And that's why we always appreciate it, even today, when someone writes to the magazine, writes to Coin World, writes to us, and we encourage you, if you're listening to the podcast, we'd like to hear your feedback, too. If you have any suggestions, ideas, comments, we'll be happy to take them. We always give them to Jeff, though. But still, I mean, he's not here to defend himself. So, but yeah, we, you know, we, we, we do, would, don't we? 
Yeah, we're going to hear from Jeff later on. He was part of the Jerry Fortin interview, but uh, I had a chance to listen to you and Jeff last week when you were doing the uh, podcast around the Abby Zekman interview, and it was a very interesting trivia question that you guys had. So uh, can you relate that again for the listeners who may have missed it the first time? You know, larger responsibility as it is to fill Jeff's shoes. I'll, I'll try and do my best here. Um, so we we have been talking about Russian coins and medals, and Jeff had mentioned that uh, a common practice um, by coin producing authorities and mints in Russia was to restrike. Um, I think medals were what we were specifically talking about, but there's um, there is a practice of striking restriking, I should say, metals using original dyes, sometimes decades after the metals were initially produced and issued. Um, and there is a term to describe these types of restrikes. They're officially produced. They're produced by the by the mints, but you know they, they're produced later. Uh, so Jeff was wondering what the term for those types of restrikes are. So Larry, what, uh, you know, if, if you've got a cheat sheet, I imagine you know. Could you share with the listeners? Well, I don't know that I'm exactly right because I'm still learning a lot of this stuff. And when I heard the question, I actually had no idea. So I turned to one of my reference sources. I went to Dick Doty's book. It's got a lot of terms in there, and I looked up some things. And I think I'm going to go with, I don't even know if I can correctly pronounce it, but I think it's like Novodel, N-O-V-O-D-E-L, is what I'm going to say. That's that's my guess is what the term could be. If I'm right, I'm, I thank uh, Dr. Doty for that. If I'm wrong... I need to do better research. Well, I'm really glad that you said it because that would have been my answer as well. And I also wasn't totally sure how to pronounce it. So it's super cool that you went first. Kind of kind of crashed through that wall for us. I don't know. Novadel is how it's spelled and how it would make sense for me to say it. So I don't know. I don't, I don't know if there are any uh, late night comedy fans out there, but there was an old Craig Ferguson bit from years and years ago where he made some um, he made some obscure sort of joke about science, some scientific concept. Then he looked right at the camera and goes, I, I await your letters. <laughs> like that's that's uh, that's what we're going to do. And so if we're wrong, I hope someone out there can correct us. And we do await your letters. So anyway, uh, yeah, I, I think that that's right. And also, by the way, Wait, did you consult? Was it the um, you mentioned uh, Dr. Richard Doty? Did you consult the Macmillan Encyclopedic Dictionary of Numismatics? That's the one. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yep. I actually that's I actually have, on my desk uh, right now. Oh yeah, I mean, and it's uh, the cover is well worn. Uh, the pages have been turned often back and forth. Whether it's uh, looking up something by the first letter of the word, whether it's looking up something and then finding other words that are related to that, and then. They, it's, it's a fascinating book that if you don't have it, I mean, I consider it one of the premier reference sources that we keep in this library back here. So I didn't have to go to that book to come up with a question since so I don't know how you managed to get out of answering it, even though you would have been correct, because you didn't have to answer when Jeff asked it. So I'm going to go I've, ahead I've, and I've, ask I've got you. a real racket going here. I've really <laughs> I figured yeah, out how did. to avoid answering anything. We'll have to see if uh, you're in on the next one here. Maybe we can get Jeff off the hook here, but uh, I've <laughs> yeah, got I'll, maybe, maybe I'll take this one. It's an elementary question, but it goes in connection with the interview we're going to have uh, coming up here very shortly with Jerry Fortin. We're talking about Liberty Seated, and of course, Liberty Seated encompasses the uh, twenty cent coin, the double dime. So my question for the listeners and for Jeff or you, or if I have to answer my own question next week, I've got an advantage. The 20 cent coin was very short lived in the history of coinage in the United States. And it continues along in other places, but a 20 cent coin is a fascination to me. And I want to know how many times did the powers try to get a 20 cent coin 
into our circulation before they were finally successful. I want to know how many tries it took before finally somebody said in the 19th century, yes, let's have a 20-cent coin. So uh, it's a simple numeric answer, but uh, you just have to tell me how many times they tried to get that coin to be part of our uh, part of our environment. So that's the simple question right there. You probably know it right off the bat. But, uh, you know, give it some thought and we'll see what the answer is next time we get together. Sounds like a plan. I mean, it uh, it produced the, those efforts produced a very short lived series. So we'll uh, we, we shall see. Well, anyway, Larry, I'll, uh, while I ponder that, uh, I hope the listeners enjoy you, your and Jeff's interview with Jerry Fortin. The Coin World Podcast is indeed pleased to have Jerry Fortin from Jerry Fortin Rare Coins on with today's episode, taking time away from what's been a very, very busy week, and we're glad to have you. Welcome aboard, Jerry. Appreciate you taking that time. Well, my pleasure. Larry and uh, Jeff, thank you for the opportunity to chat. Great. So let's go ahead and get things started a little bit by uh, asking you to tell us a little bit about yourself, about your professional background. But I'm especially intrigued by the uh, semiconductor wafer uh, wafer that I saw in in an ad here in CoinWorld. Oh, yeah. There was definitely a a strategic reason for using that uh, semiconductor wafer in the ad. Let me take a step back. I spent 37 years in the semiconductor industry. Uh, it goes back a long way. Uh, the career started in 1978, working for IBM at the dawn of the mainframe computer age. I then worked for Fairchild National Semiconductor for a number of years uh, in all types of uh, positions, both engineering and management. And the final six years were spent in uh, China, working for a Chinese semiconductor foundry in Wuxi, which is about an hour north of Shanghai. And there I ran marketing and sales for a Chinese company, which was quite an adventure, considering my, uh, my Chinese Mandarin is Yi Dian Dian. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, it's been quite, quite the career. Uh, but the skills acquired during those 37 years have lent themselves, you know, well towards building this this coin business. And uh, I've always been a bit of an innovator and restless uh, with respect to business. I can only do a certain position three, four years, then I get bored, then I need to move on to something else because I just love learning. And I wanted to feature something special in a full-page coin roll ad to, you know, kickstart the new GFRC online auction platform and I thought about it, and I said, why not go back to my roots and take a semiconductor wafer and use it as a backdrop? And that's what was done. I went online, did some Google searching, and found that beautiful image with the rainbow colors, which also serve as a great visual because collectors love rainbow tone coins. I mean, especially Morgans and you know other silver pieces. So I thought this would be a, a particularly interesting and eye-catching way to, uh, you know, make a splash in coin world. Very cool. I w- I'm curious. You've been in the semiconductor industry for 37 years. When did your interest in coins begin? Is it a, is it a similarly lifelong pursuit, or uh, where where did it fall in your timeline? Uh, oh, that's a good question. And, you know, like all of us, when I was uh, 
a young boy and I shoveled driveways up in Maine, you know, snow uh, and mowed lawns. I was uh, filling the Whitman blue folders with uh, Lincolns and, uh, and Buffalo Nichols. And I mean, I did not have substantial financial means, would go to the bank on my bike and get five rolls of uh, pennies and search the rolls. So that's how I got my started, like my start in numismatics, like everybody else. I was actually a coin world subscriber back in the early 70s. I would read coin world from front to back. Then, you know, girls, electronics, stereo equipment became much more important. I just forgot about coins until, uh, what was it, 1988. And then there was this uh, event in my life that just really triggered the passion for coins. Uh, it was a Christmas Eve, and my wife's mother gave us a roll of Morgan dollars uh, for Christmas. I mean, she probably bought them on Home Shopping Net. <laughs> and looking at the condition, and I, I don't want to think what she paid for them. <laughs> my wife looked at them and just passed them to me. <laughs> you know, I said, all right, you do something with them. And that was it. Uh, that restarted the passion. So this is 1988. Uh, so the first half of 1989, I started collecting Morgans. And within six months, I was thoroughly bored. Uh, Morgans were not for me because they were omnipresent. You go to any coin show, there's Morgan dollars everywhere. And I like more of a challenge in life. Uh, so then I made a command decision one day to sit down, take out the red book, and select a Liberty Seated Coinage series that I wanted to pursue. And no surprise, I picked Liberty Seated Dimes. Next step was joining the Liberty Seated Collectors Club in 1989. And it did not take long before uh, John McClowski, the president at the time, referred me to Brian Greer. I and mean, I think everybody well knows Brian Greer. And Brian Greer became my initial mentor, and we forged a close relationship. In 1992, Brian published his guidebook, you know, the DLRC Press Guidebook, on Liberty Seated Dimes, including some varieties. And uh, that was the spark. I decided at that point that I was going to do a more Overton-like research project and attempt to identify all of the dyes and dye marriages for Liberty Seated Dimes. Uh, the first step was buying a good portion of Brian Greer's collection as a, you know, a seed for the project. And so while I was working in the semiconductor business, I would spend evenings uh, researching seeded dimes. I built a database, extract all the key parameters, you know, date position, mint mark position, all the stuff you got to do when you're starting to identify die pairs and uh, individual dies. And that went on until 2004. And at that point, I published online the first dye variety book. That was quite a step personally and also for the industry because no one had thought of not going the hardbound book route, rather going directly online. But for me, it was a natural decision because being in the semiconductor industry, I could see the consolidation of electronics into handheld devices. It was readily available that a cell phone or a tablet would be a much more convenient uh, vehicle carrying dive variety information at a coin show 
rather than heavy books. So that's essentially it. So I, uh, in 2004, I published, and then my focus became more on building a top-level uh, Liberty Seed of Dime collection, which I think is well-recognized today. Uh, and then I retired in 2012 from the semiconductor business. I was just thoroughly burnt out. It was quite a stressful period in China. And in 2014, I launched GFRC more as a hobby business, just as a first step. So we're going to get to GFRC here in just a minute, but I want to focus on the Liberty Seated Coins themselves and what the attraction would be. I mean, you expressed that the, the Morgans were kind of not for you, but what was it about the Liberty Seated that really made it attractive to you? Uh, not mentioned so far as I'm a student of history. Uh, when I was growing up as a boy, uh, my father had been in the Korean War, and I found myself attracted to books on World War II and also the Civil War. So I read profusely on those two historical events and the Civil War in particular. So when I was thinking about a new collecting objective, it was just natural to collect coins during the period of the Civil War. And that led to Liberty Seated. Uh, the challenge was to make a decision on which denomination. And after doing some analysis, I thought the dimes were within my budget, that I could do a complete set of Liberty Seated dimes uh, in fine 12 condition. And that, so that was the starting point. I mean, also the, uh, the Liberty Seated period is replete with just fantastic history. I mean, you've got the Mexican-American War in 1846. You've got the gold rush in 1849. So, so there's all kinds of uh, important formulative events for the United States during that period. Uh, so it, it brings history to life by holding and researching uh, liberty-seated coinage, especially the branch mints, because the branch mints offer a different perspective on the country. New Orleans, for example, in the Deep South, and then San Francisco on the West Coast. Completely different commercial environments versus, versus the rich uh, East Coast area, you know, the Philadelphia through New York City corridor where all major businesses were located. I am curious, and, and you know, this is not something that occurred to me until just the last few moments. We call the coinage seated liberty, but collectors, as you know, often call it liberty seated. Is there a um, <laughs> is 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 there a good explanation for that diffuse way of you know the the differing uh, of opinions there that that lead to how people refer to that? <laughs> uh, I know of none. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I know of none. It's. I think we just set a standard and we stick with it, but. Why we set that standard, I cannot help you. Yeah, didn't mean to throw a curveball, but it was just like oh, you know, no. I, it's oh, LSC, yeah. you know, the Liberty City Collectors Club. But you know, so many folks say "See the Liberty Coin," and it's so. Anyway, I just it was that was like I'm going to throw that in there while I'm thinking of it because you know somebody else might be hearing that and have the same question. So mm -hmm. anyway. So let's get back to the business. You mentioned it earlier that uh, after you retired, you were interested in starting your business. And uh, it, it's great that the world knows about Jerry Fortin Rare Coins. How did that come about? And uh, 
are some of your customers, once they learn a little bit more about you, surprised that you're not just uh, Liberty Seated? Okay, well, let's take a step back. Uh, when I was in China, you know, China can be a, a lonely place when you're single. So I would spend the weekends in Shanghai, and Shanghai had two large coin markets. Uh, it was Winzhou and Lugong. And I would spend a good part of my, my Saturdays or Sundays at the Winzhou Antique Mall and on the fourth and fifth floors where the coin dealers were located. And I started building relationships with uh, some of those dealers. Some of them spoke English, and some of them sold U.S. coins. And since in my, my role, I was back and forth. I was constantly flying back and forth between China and the United States. I would bring over coins for these dealers. So I became part of their supply chain. And I would also hang out, you know, at their booths. And uh, so I actually on weekends became, you know, kind of like this part-time coin dealer and had a reputation in Shanghai for being the American in the Chinese coin markets. So, so that was the beginning of learning how to do business as a coin dealer. And believe me, Chinese customers are much tougher than American <laughs> customers. I mean, culturally, the Chinese have a way of negotiating, which is to insult your coin towards driving the price down. I mean, it's, it's a very rude approach, but that's how they do it. And you just have to, you know, let it go by and then eventually they'll buy the coin. So that was the beginning. When I got back to the U.S., uh, again, I can't sit still. I'm a very restless person. I need to have continuous learning. So I said, I'm just going to give this a go. I have, at the peak of the research project, I had 1,600 Liberty Seated Dimes that had to be divested. So I said, let's just start a business to start that divestment process. And before long, I realized I needed to expand product lines and go into other Liberty Seated denominations. And then I became fascinated with cat bus halves. And, you know, it, it just kept going. And today, I just have a broad range of uh, product lines and customers are not surprised anymore. Uh, I think I've become well known for being quite diverse in product offerings, but more important, the key ingredient of the business is just quality coins. Like more than half my sale are CAC approved coins. So what are some of the areas of this business that have been helped by your previous experience? I mean, you've touched upon that a little, but maybe you can elaborate. Sure. Uh, when I was in the semi-business, uh, I held a variety of positions. Uh, uh, I was in, By training, I was an electronics engineer. So I had a deep understanding of semiconductor physics. Uh, afterwards, I actually uh, was trained in operation theory and management. I ran a semiconductor wafer fab for two years. Now, that's challenging. Very, very challenging. I built and designed an information system for Fairchild for controlling yield management in the wafer fabs and the offshore assembly sites. Uh, I was a quality director for a while. Uh, and then at the end of my career, I, was, I ran marketing and sales and managed a, a $60 million P&L for a Chinese company. So when you 
execute all those roles, you acquire a substantial amount of experience. So operating a small coin dealership, uh, I was able to take all those past skills and quickly put in systems for managing the, the business uh, really with just one and a half people. Now, one key piece was the understanding of metallurgy. Uh, when you're working with semiconductors, you're sputtering thin aluminum films, copper, gold, nickel, uh, a variety of metals, you know, really at the atomic level. So I had a keen understanding of metals. And when you look at silver coins, uh, my perspective is probably different than most collectors because I can look at the coin and have a good sense of its history based on the texture of the metal, the oxidation, the color, because I was constantly working with these type of metals and doing failure analysis. I hope that gives you an idea. So both from an operational and systems perspective, but also at the individual coin level, uh, it, it's been quite helpful. It's great. And, you know, the idea that you keep coming back to the, that you can't sit still. I mean, it's obvious then that there's going to be a lot of growth and expansion into the business as it continues to mature here. And one of the areas we see and talk about a lot in numismatics is the acquisition of product by way of auctions. And auctions have seemed to have gravitated more toward online. And it looks like uh, that GFRC is gravitating that way as well. Uh, yes, that, that was uh, an important step. Prior to setting up the, the auction platform, the business was primarily consignment. Again, having uh, pretty strong operation skills, uh, it was quite straightforward to set up, you know, a, a mini factory here in, in my uh, coin office, you know, for photography, image processing, description generation, uploading everything uh, online. The, uh, the software is all custom developed. Uh, I know many dealers have to buy these, uh, you know, dealer-centric packages to set up their websites. Uh, in my case, all the software is, is uh, custom developed uh, for being as highly efficient as possible. So I hope that gives you s some idea. Definitely gives me some idea, but I mean, you've got an event coming up very, very soon here, March 12th. So there has to have been a lot of work that was made necessary to get in preparation for this event. Can you talk a little bit about that? Sure. I'll just talk in, in general about what it's like launching and facilitating an auction business. There's really two major components to it. The first component is you have to get the coins. So that's, this is that marketing and sales component, that credibility building, where people will trust that you can effectively market their coins and secure top-notch prices. That took some work. That took you know, the many years of operating GFRC on a consignment basis and establishing a large community of people with the daily blog and building that credibility. So that, that became the initial stepping stone for then taking the business to the next level, which is programming and installing an auction platform, because I knew I could source the coins. Because many collectors have told me that the consignment business was too slow. And it's consignment is more fixed price. They like to see their coins go to auction first and whatever 
does not sell goes to a price list afterwards. So the auction platform became that answer to the feedback I received from a number of clients. The second piece, again, is just all operations. The March 12 auction was really a first step for GFRC because prior to this point, I had only brought online complete collections. This time around, I pretty well opened it up with a couple of smaller seed consignments and said, okay, let's build a, uh, a large auction out of just small consignments, but I wanted the consignments to be quality, top quality consignments. And we ended up with uh, 71 pieces in the matter of uh, a week and a half, which was uh, quite rewarding uh, in terms of the operation. Then the coins come in, they have to be photographed, they have to be loaded into a database. I set reserve price recommendations for all coins, which is, I think, is something unique for collectors. Collectors, I think, don't like auctions due to the reserve price setting process because they're just not in the business day to day. So to help uh, my clients along, I will take the first shot at setting a reserve and then they can approve it or they can make changes. But I, I think it's gone very well with clients. Uh, most of the time, those reserves are uh, approved. They just, they just say run with it. Once the reserves are approved, then the next step is writing descriptions. And right now, Len Osberger, who's well known, he was a contractor for Heritage. Uh, he's also now the LSCC president. He does the majority of my uh, cataloging, as we'll call it, the description writing. Uh, because again, that is a lengthy process while I'm busy doing photography and the other aspects of the auction setup. And uh, from my observation, I'm glad you mentioned the blog. We'll get to that in a minute. But you seem to be as a, I won't say a one-man band because uh, you have Diane to help with uh, shipping and other particulars. And, of course, Buddy there to provide constant <laughs> companionship. Uh, but, um, you know, you, you've written recently about, you know, these. this leads to 12-hour work days and, and lots of, lots of uh, work and, but you, you're turning this around rather quickly. I mean, it seems like uh, just based on reading the blog, this, this auction has come together in just a matter of a couple weeks. And that's far more agile than some of the, the big companies. Uh, can you talk about that? Uh, you're quite perceptive. Uh, that's true. Let's go back to the semiconductor business. Uh, in the semiconductor business, it was a very high stress environment where you were forced to be as efficient as possible with your time. In the early days, we were trying to shave a tenth of a cent off the cost of building a computer chip. We were down at that level from an analytical basis. So I have this natural mindset of efficiency and people will probably think I'm crazy. But when I'm working here in the office with coins, I'm always studying every business process or every handling process I have in the office. And I'm thinking, how can I streamline it? How can I make it more efficient? How can I do less steps to format an image? And when you do this over a period of years, you become incredibly efficient, which means you can turn coins very quickly, much faster than the competitors. And in the daily blog, 
by communicating every day on what I'm doing, how I'm doing it, all the new coins and the images that are posted, the community sees the effectiveness of the business and what they're getting for the commission rate. So it's a spirit of continuous improvement. I'm working seven days a week while I'm in Florida and I, I enjoy it. I have this passion for building a business and I have a passion for coins. So it, it works very well together. When I get back to Maine in May, because we're snowbirds, you will see things slow down a bit. I will stop working weekends and I will be focused more on another project I have going, which I, I've talked about in the blog, which is developing 20 acres of wooded land into walking trails. And I think that's just your desire to get back on that tractor is what it comes you to. Got you got it. You got it. Right. Okay. Then, then you you got it. it. I got a brand new upgraded tractor that will be available when I get back to Maine, and I'm looking forward to being on that tractor. Yeah. <laughs> Going back to the auction a little bit, you mentioned uh, the number of lots that were involved. I think one of the biggest downfalls of a lot of online auctions is they are so huge and so massive that you you know can't even get through all the listings. And another thing I like about this is the reserve because it takes me back to a comment you made at a presentation at the fun show in January where you were talking about uh, Liberty Seated Quarters. You made mention that there is very little understanding as to what the value of these coins can be because it seems like the trade papers, and we're probably among them, can't keep up with what's going on because these some of these coins are traded rather infrequently. I'd like you to expand upon that. You're absolutely correct. Uh, you were quite attentive at my presentation. When you get back to early type, other than some of the common dates, like for Liberty City Quarters, there's probably 10 common dates that trade on a regular basis. And beyond that, the other dates trade infrequently. There's low survival rates and very low availability in the current market. I mean, you walk a, a regular Bourse floor, and start counting the number of Liberty seated coins that you will find in dealer cases outside of, you know, the high end uh, pieces in 65 through 67. Uh, but the true collector coins are very, very difficult to locate. Most are in collector hands. Now, when coins of this caliber don't trade often, you don't have information by which to reset pricing. Uh, this is where I come in since I'm a, probably one of the larger dealers now in the country for, for all Liberty City coinage is since I, I trade and I work with collectors, I have insights that uh, other people don't have. Uh, and I, I get it. It's difficult for CDN and other individuals, you know, that publish price guides to be on top of all series. It's much easier to monitor Morgan's, uh, U.S. Gold, uh, and then 20th century type coins that trade constantly. It's easy to discern a trend. But when you have Liberty City coinage with some dates that you may see two or three auction trades in a year within a grade range, what do you do with prices? How do you adjust them? This is where I come in with reserve setting is I'm using my own sales archive now, which captures all of my sales for the past seven years, along with the CAT guide, CDN, uh, CoinFAQs, 
And I can pretty well digest all this information and make a recommendation on, on what I think the coins are truly worth in today's market. And so far, I think I've been pretty accurate. Each auction has had about a 70% sell-through rate, which is, uh, I think it's quite good. That's pretty cool. Your attentiveness to the market and, and interaction with the market, your metallurgic background gives you uh, some insights to this as well. Um, are CD Liberty coins, given their rarity and and history and all that, are they often items that are uh, threats of counterfeit, uh, either you know, contemporaneous or more modern iterations, how how important is being wary about that for the would-be collector? Oh, that's a very good question. Let's take a step back. And there are two types of counterfeits, especially for liberty-seated coinage. Uh, you have the contemporary counterfeits. So those were counterfeits that were created during the period at which the coins circulated. Mm -hmm. And if you look on my website, uh, I've done quite a bit of uh, analysis of contemporary counterfeits. I built a separate database for that. On my website, you'll find the Liberty Seed of Dime contemporary counterfeits. And on the LSCC website, you will find the quarters and the halves. Most collectors are not fooled by contemporary counterfeits, though there are some incredibly well-done counterfeits. And I'll give you one story. Years ago, when I was doing research, I bought an 1842-0 dime from Dick Osborne. It was in, a piece, in an NGC holder. And I put it on, in my web book. And I gave it its own dye variety listing. And I kept looking for a confirmation specimen for years. And I could never find one. And after I did a lot of the contemporary counterfeit research, I went back and looked at this darn thing, and I says, I'll be darned. It's a contemporary counterfeit that got huh. graded by NGC. Hmm. And it fooled Dick Osborne. It fooled me. Uh, so I sent it back to NGC and told them what it was, and, yep, they bought the coin. That's a really rare occasion when a contemporary counterfeit is that good. Most of them were done with uh, hand-cut dies, so the devices are poorly engraved, or they were done with a uh, debased metal. A lot of them were antimony, and the antimony contemporary counterfeits are easy to see because they're very lightweight. Some of them have actually cracked because the antimony metal is quite brittle. So that's one aspect of it. Uh, the second aspect is the new counterfeits coming out of China. Also, while I was working in China, I would spend time in the markets, uh, the regular markets, the tourist area markets in Shanghai. And I would look at all of the cheap counterfeits that were being offered. You could buy a trade dollar for about 20 bucks. You knew there was something wrong. So today there are a whole range of counterfeits coming out of China. Some are very poorly done, they're cast, and some were done in Fujian province, in Fujian province, there is a mint that has bought used U.S. presses and has developed a method for making silver planchets that are fairly consistent with the original planchet alloy. And they're striking these. 
these counterfeits are very, very deceptive. Probably the easiest way to identify them is looking at the date punch. The Chinese are economical and they will reuse date punches across uh, a variety of denominations. Uh, and they're not trying to match the original date punches from the, uh, the contemporary period that the coin was minted in the U.S. So that's how on eBay or any other place uh, that these come up is I just look at the date punch and right away I can tell it's a Chinese counterfeit. The third aspect that is very troubling for collectors is when coins are tooled or have added mint marks. The Carson City dates, so 1871 through 74 on seated dimes is an area that one has to be very, very careful with tooling either you know, changing the date or trying to create the CC mint mark. And I've seen a number of those pieces over the years. Uh, just recently, I mean, two weeks ago, and I think you saw it in my blog, uh, an 1874 with arrows dime was tooled to remove the arrows and to turn it into uh, an 1874 F-106 no arrows dime, which is worth in the thousands. And after their work, they, I mean, very professionally retoned the coin with crusty gray surfaces. This one is very, very deceptive. So really three cases. Contemporary counterfeits should not bother collectors too much if they have a basic understanding. The counterfeits out of China can be very deceptive. You need to know the pickup points and then tooling, try, uh, trying to turn common coins into key dates. Uh, very good to know. I know uh, your background offers uh, not only the experience with the counterfeits, but you can speak, and I've heard you do this, uh, you can speak rather succinctly and, dare I say, eloquently, but you can discuss the challenges of collecting various liberty-seated coinage by denomination. It seems as if you have dime, quarter, half dollar. Some of those are more challenging than others. Can you talk about who might want to approach what denomination and some of the pitfalls therein, uh, whether that's, you know, the availability of product, the whole metric there. Okay. Good, good, good question. Let me just start by looking at Liberty Seated Coinage at a higher level. Collecting Liberty Seated Coinage, uh, if you're going to buy choice pieces, is a expensive proposition. One needs to have a firm budget and a commitment to do this. This is just not a casual undertaking. Sure, you can go out to a coin show and buy, you know, build typesets of VG through fines, the coins are cleaned. I mean, that's a fun exercise. You'll still get much of the historical significance. But if you're a serious collector, there's the possibility to use liberty-seated coin collecting as a financial diversification opportunity, which is what I've done personally. If you look at my Liberty Seated Dime collection, it has many of the finest known pieces, and it, it's a very substantial piece of my overall estate. Uh, so that that's, there's that to uh, perspective. If you're going to seriously collect Liberty Seated coinage, you need the budget and the financial means to stay engaged. Looking at the individual denominations, they're all different. And some are better suited 
to certain collectors based on their attention span, their visual skills, and their financial means. Uh, attention span is key because building a quality set of Liberty City coins in any denomination is a multi-year project. Uh, to me, five years minimum commitment. The most popular series today are the half dollars for a number of reasons. Uh, availability. The mintages uh, for the half dollars are high compared to the other denominations. So they're available in all grades. They're large size, which means they're easy to see. Uh, and they retain the original artistry of Goldbrick. If you look at the Liberty seated design on the half dollar, it did not change since its inception in 1839. And in 1839, the original engraving was similar to the Goldbrick dollar. That's not the case in most other denominations. They went through some rather dramatic design changes to increase the manufacturability of the denominations. But in doing so, they lost artistic value. They made uh, the designs lower relief and less, less beautiful. So most popular for a number of reasons is half dollars. The second most popular is dimes. Uh, the dimes also had high mintages except for certain periods. The Civil War period is a very challenging era for Liberty City Dimes. But outside of that period, it is fairly straightforward to collect the 121 pieces that are needed for a, a Red Book variety set. And then you've got the Carson City dates that are just very, very expensive to locate. But the dimes are doable. They're doable in circulated grade. They're doable in AU with a reasonable budget. And since there's so many pieces to accumulate, it's fun. It, it will keep you captivated for many years. The next one is the half dimes. The half dimes have a couple issues. Uh, it's a short series. It ends in 1873. It has... The half dimes are hard to see. There's a lot of striking variations. Some of the dates come miserably struck. 1856, for example. Uh, so if people want to immerse themselves into, as a starting point into Liberty Seated Coinage, the half dimes are a possibility. They're easier to procure. They're less expensive. They're less popular. Uh, but they're still, they're still challenging in high grades. That leaves the dollars and the quarters. Uh, you heard me speak about the quarters. The quarters are the most challenging from a survival rate perspective. The quarter mintages were low. In uh, the 1860s, 1870s, even the Philadelphia mintages were low, uh, along with the, uh, the branch mints. Survival rates are very low because the quarter was a workhorse denomination in commerce. Quarters are not for the faint of heart. If you're serious about building a top quarter set, you're looking at a five to 10 year project, along with having these reserve funds on hand when the right coin does appear to the market. Today, Liberty Seed quarters are closely held by a number of collectors, and it's very difficult to pry the quarters 
away from these individuals because they're such prized pieces and they are appreciating value. That leaves the seed of dollars. The seed of dollars are challenging from several perspectives. The dollars are low mintage in most cases, other than a few dates. They're expensive and availability of choice pieces is very, very low. One of the problems that I hate about dollars is probably at least half of the certified dollars have been cleaned. You look at any, go to any bourse floor and start looking for seated dollars and holders. And I just shake my head all the time. The grading services are very lenient on seated dollars because the populations are so low. So they create, they will grade a number of clean coins. When you factor all the clean coins out of the equation, there are very few choice coins available for collectors. And that makes collecting the series very, very difficult. It requires considerable patience. And when choice pieces do appear on the market, the bids go up very quickly because the knowledgeable, knowledgeable individuals will pay the price to get at these coins. Uh, the other problem with seeded dollars is many have been enhanced or worked on. Uh, I see this often when you look at certified seeded dollars. It, and again, my metallurgy background, it's, it's not very hard to see how the coins have been enhanced. That helps a lot. I mean, and you'd mentioned earlier about how when you got interested in Liberty Seated and in the dimes that you uh, turned to certain resources. So what should a person who's interested in collecting these, uh, if they have everything that's necessary to do so, what should they do to get started? My advice would be to have a conversation like this with me or with any other dealer that specializes in Liberty Seated coinage. Before spending any money, is think through what your goals are, uh, what your time frame is for building a collection. Is it going to be a casual affair? Is it going to be a serious undertaking? Do you want to be in the top five in a PCGS set registry? You have to sit back and think about this first. Secondly, you have to look at the different denominations and again, decide which denomination is right for you based on your overall goals. Thirdly, and which everybody says, buy the book before you buy the coin. Try and do as much online and book research and learn about the series, learn about the key dates, learn about the pricing structure before you jump in. And once you feel comfortable with your targeted denomination, then start buying. The question becomes, do you buy common dates first or do you jump into key dates? Because key dates continue to appreciate. The problem with that equation is how good are your grading skills on a denomination that you've not examined uh, in hand for a long period of time? One of the issues with Liberty Seated Coinage is strike. Modern day coinage, the strikes are, are consistent, uh, even Morgan's Walking Liberty has, even though there's some uh, striking issues on the obverse and walking Liberty has, seated coinage is the striking issues are much more diverse. They're branch mint specific grading branch mint coins versus Philadelphia struck coins is a challenge because many times the grading services will grade strike and not wear. 
So there's a whole level of complexity once you start jumping in that you need to understand, but you can only do that by having the physical coins in your hand. Uh, my advice to people is before you jump in, go to auction lot previews and look at several hundred coins from your targeted denomination and determine the availability, look at the striking variation, look at the grading, looking at luster, looking at all these parameters, uh, you, you'll become much more comfortable in terms of the objective you're setting. Good advice to follow right there for sure. So uh, let's talk now a little bit and wrap this up with uh, some ideas of where you've mentioned uh, Liberty Seated Collectors Club. They've got a great website with a lot of information. And of course, your very own with the information you provide with the auction coming up with your daily blogs. Let's go ahead and get those addresses out there where folks can get this information and get started. All right. Well, the Liberty Seated website is lsccweb.org. I would recommend that anybody who has a desire to collect Liberty Seated coinage start there. That website contains uh, a link with a host of online references. For example, my web book for dimes. Uh, Bill Burgert has put PDF versions of his Liberty Seated half dollar die variety books on the website. Quarters, there's none available. And half dimes are currently undergoing research and an individual named Clint Cummings is starting to populate by day, date a very detailed analysis of all the half-dime varieties. So the lsccweb.org is an excellent step. Uh, my website is www.cedadimevarieties.com. And I think it's well known by now as the web book. Uh, there's also seedaddollarvarieties.com, which has been published by Dick Osborne. And there you can find the analysis of the seeded dollar die varieties. Uh, there's much less in terms of variety analysis for dollars because the mintages were so low. Uh, I think that pretty well. Oh, no. Oh, God forbid if I forget John Frost and... Double Dimes. John Frost has done a phenomenal job with a website specifically for uh, Double Dime Dive Varieties because John is also the webmaster for the LSCC website. And he also set up the same website for Dick Osborne for the dollars. So the community has been very, very active in terms of information, readily available information for collectors. We appreciate you spending your time here today and passing along all that information. Uh, certainly a benefit from that. want to wish you well in the uh, March 12th auction here as we're going to keep an eye on that. And of course, uh, the report's going to end up in the LSCC monthly. Uh, how you do on that, I'm sure. So Jerry Fortin, Jerry Fortin Rare Coins, we thank you once again for being a guest on our Coin World podcast. Well, thank you very much. Appreciate it. It was a great learning experience, and uh, we hope you enjoyed it as well as we spoke with Jerry Fortin of Jerry Fortin Rear Coins at SeededDimeVarieties.com. And he made mention of the upcoming uh, auction that he's going to be having uh, beginning on March 12th. And uh, I, I'd like to take a little time right now, Chris, if you'll bear with me here. I'd like to go ahead and acknowledge a few things that are happening coming up. So as we encouraged uh, before, we want folks to get out and start going to coin shows. We can't list them all right here. Certainly, there are many listed 
on the pages of Coin World, and uh, so you can see them uh, back in the back listings of our classifieds here. But big show this weekend, of course, in Colorado Springs. The ANA's uh, National Money Show is happening at the Broadmoor. A lot of things around that. A lot of great learning opportunities. Also. Uh, couple of uh, local coin shows that you might want to give some consideration to. In Louisville, the Derby City Coin Club is holding their spring coin show. That's Louisville, Kentucky. And this one caught my eye, too. This one's happening on March 11th through the 13th, and it's at the uh, Garfield County Fairgrounds in Eden, Oklahoma. It's the 45th Annual Coin, Token, and Paper Money Show. And I love seeing those 45th annuals because we went through a period here where we had to pause those annual shows and it's good to see them start coming back here. So uh, if you have a coin show going on in your area, maybe you're making it to Colorado Springs or perhaps paying attention to the auction from uh, Jerry Fortin Rare Coins, then uh, please, by all means, keep this hobby as vibrant as we possibly can keep it. Chris, any final thoughts? As always, we are grateful to Cornroll Plus for sponsoring this episode, and we would love it if all of you come back next week. If you enjoyed this episode, any of our previous episodes, if you want to support the work that we do, the best way for you to do that is to keep on listening every week and remember to subscribe. And Larry, until next week, happy collecting. Thank you for listening to the Coin World Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, and we'll see you next CoinWorld Plus is your new way to collect. Manage your inventory, digitally authenticate coins, create your want list, buy and sell coins, and much more. Learn more about CoinWorld Plus at CoinWorldPlus.com or download the app now at Google Play or the App Store.